Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. This will be part two of this section of the book of Luke to Emmaus and back. I'll read from verse 9 through to verse 43 from chapter 24. And please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed. And he appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they'd seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So, you know, we all died in the garden. Back in the beginning, before the lie was believed, the Lord walked with us and He fed us from the tree of life. It's an essential part of being human. We eat. There was no veil covering our hearts or our eyes at that time. We learned from God as He walked amongst us. And we ate together in perfect peace and joy with God. But the perfect learning and unbroken closeness with God were lost, along with that wonderful tree. After the fall, we ran to isolation and ignorance when He came and walked amongst us. They were hiding, weren't they? You see, we died. And that pre-resurrection age was marked primarily by accelerated death and disintegration from that moment in time. Yet even in the garden, even in the shadow of the fall, The Lord God gives hope. He points forward to this great inflection moment that we will look at today. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And Adam called his wife's name Eve. You know, he named Eve after the fall. He was trusting in God. Because she was the mother of all the living Adam understood life in the shadow of death. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So there in the garden, in the shadow of the fall, the serpent, we're told, will be crushed. We see multiplying life. Eve is the mother of life. And we see that they're saved by death. This foreshadowing, God killing. Best we know, that's the first death. Who knows what that animal was, but then he clothed them with the skin. Pointing forward to what we will look at today. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, has changed everything. As history's inflection point, Christ's resurrection brought the world into the age of regeneration. Inflection point is a concept for mathematics, but it's that moment when everything changes. If you think in terms of slope, if you think in terms of differentials, if you've done this type of thinking, you know it's when the change occurs. And it can be almost imperceptible, but it's when the reversal happens. You see, we live in this age after History's inflection point. Christ's resurrection brought our world into what he himself called the regeneration. We live in this age, in the age of the regeneration. We are the recipients of this most wondrous gift from God. New life in us and through us unto a renewed 
world. He is making all things new. And it started when he came out of the grave. He has crushed Satan's head. The victory is assured. New life is now multiplied over the entire world. Christ's bride, the mother of all the living, if you will. Arising from his death so that we are now clothed in his life and his righteousness. These are glorious truths, aren't they? But do you walk in this? Do you walk in the Spirit, living in the certainty of this new life poured out from heaven? Or do you walk in fear? If not, if you're walking not in faith, but in fear, what is hindering you? And the answer is pretty simple. There's a number of different categories we'll look at today. Ignorance and idolatry being two of the big ones that we will see today. So last week, I hope you'll recall that we looked at verses 13 through 35, this overview from a a chiasm, from a structural, a textual, structural perspective. And we saw these changes that came to these disciples as a result of the Word and fellowship. These great changes that the text emphasizes through the structure that they saw with eyes of faith even as Christ vanished and that they were walking with the invisible Christ by faith even though they didn't see Him when He was there in bodily form with them. And that their hope is restored as they're headed back to Jerusalem and they go back to the place of hope. And this week... You'll see there also in the sermon notes this chiastic structure. If you will, it's a double chiasm. It's a chiasm within a chiasm emphasizing that Jesus Christ is alive and that His resurrection changes everything. This is Christianity 101. But do we have the understanding of the heart? Have we by faith, made this reality the bedrock of our existence. You can know it and not know it. You can see Him and not see Him. But these two, they go through this change that is the change of the age of regeneration. And it's the change that is the change of our lives day by day as we live. Christ is alive. They don't find the body. It's emphasized. His body is missing. And this moment of dawning faith is emphasized in this reversal from unbelief to faith. And then truth comes forward and a call to faith occurs and burning hearts are the result. And these warmed hearts lead to seeing Christ differently, no longer as a stranger. And then finally, in His presence, at rest, at peace, tranquil in fellowship with Him. And we will see that the resurrection is what brings this to pass. This age of regeneration. And we will ask ourselves, 
How are we like these two disciples before and after? So first of all, starting at the central point of this text, Jesus Christ is alive. His resurrection is the moment upon which history hinges and the moment at which all things began to be made new. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. You see, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, Luke relates the walk to Emmaus in a way that has Christ's reported resurrection as the turning point in their personal experience. And so we are taught that Christ's resurrection is the inflection point for their lives, but for all of history also. As this Emmaus story unfolds for these two men, we see faith, knowledge, friendship, and peaceful fellowship with Christ replacing their despair, their confusion, their isolation, and their sorrow. And as we draw back and consider the course of history, as I believe Luke and the Holy Spirit intend us to, similarly, Christ, our Messiah, has been bringing His light and life over the world since that first post-resurrection day via one Spirit-wrought regeneration, one soul after another since that great day. We now live in the age that Christ Himself called the regeneration. This age between Christ's resurrection and Christ's final bodily advent his final bodily return to stand on the earth. Christ calls this time the regeneration. This entire phase of existence of this world is termed the regeneration. Think about that. It's not just about the renewing of men's souls, but also the entire cosmos is being washed by the outpouring of His Spirit. Why else would He term the entire age the regeneration? It's used in this expansive sense here in Matthew 19, verse 28. Looking at the surrounding context from Matthew chapter 19. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, That in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for My name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This word regeneration means new birth, reproduction, renewal, recreation. It's life from death. It's light from darkness. This is the age of new life coming down from heaven by the Holy Spirit. And this new life is transformative. Where there was once only death in the soul of a human being, Jesus Christ, through the outpouring of His Spirit, brings life. You know this. Heaven comes to dwell in the heart of a hell-bound sinner and turns them on a new path. This is transformative. 
to the world around them. This is not coincidental to the world around them. It's transformative to the world around them. Calvin says about this, some connect this term with the following clause. In this sense, regeneration would be nothing else than the renovation which shall follow our restoration when life shall swallow up what is mortal and when our mean body shall be transformed into the heavenly glory of Christ. There are some who take this phrase to reference after Christ's final advent. Going on with Calvin, but I rather explain regeneration as, as referring to the first coming of Christ. For then the world began to be renewed and arose out of the darkness of death into the light of life. And this way of speaking occurs frequently in the prophets and is exceedingly adapted to the connection of this passage. For the renovation of the church, which had been so frequently promised, had raised an expectation of wonderful happiness as soon as the Messiah should appear. And therefore, in order to guard against that error, Christ distinguishes between the beginning and the completion of his reign. Christ's reign is the reign of regeneration, brothers and sisters. We see this elsewhere where this same word is used for the second time and second time only in the New Testament. In Titus chapter 3, this internal to external flowing and transformation of the world around us I'm camping out on this because this is a critical doctrinal failure of the world in which we live. Listen to how Paul sees the connection between the regeneration of our inner world and the subsequent regeneration of the world around us. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. That's a transformative way of behaving, isn't it? For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now there's another transformative way of living. It turns out whoever you are, the way you are impacts the world in which you live. Going on. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Why do we baptize by pouring? Because that's how God baptizes. How did Christ baptize here in this text? Whom He poured out. Who's the whom? The Holy Spirit. Who did the pouring? Christ. Whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is the regeneration on the inside. Going on. That having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. <coughs> This is important to Paul. He wants them to see the internal, external connection. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. See that? In, to the world. To men in general. To the world. So see there in verses 1 and 2, Paul's concern is for Titus to teach the church how they should live. Their external behaviors in view, their subjection to authority, the way they speak, 
their lowliness and humility. And again, at the end of this section, Paul shows the connection by stating that those who believe in God, that's the inner work of the Spirit, should be careful to maintain good works. That's the outer expression. And then Paul goes on to show the transformative nature of this fruitful living by saying, these things are good and profitable to men. Bad company corrupts good morals. The converse, or the inverse, if you will, of this is also true. But when you walk in faith and you are content in Christ, you're satisfied with Him, you transform the world around you as a life of love comes out of you. Praise be to God, yes? And note how Paul describes this inner work of the Spirit in verses 5 and 6. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The inner regeneration by the Holy Spirit overflows unto lives of obedience that wash the world around us. We become little fountains. We live in the age of the regeneration as the regenerate ones. You know... Baking bread is fun. Who, who likes to bake bread? Yes? Little ones, you like to bake bread? Help your sisters, your older sisters bake bread. I've seen you do that. I've even seen my sons in there marveling over the bread. There was some bread that was out yesterday, and I think if I have my baking principles right, it was rising. Is that what I was seeing? You left it out to rise a little bit? Okay, why does it rise? Somebody tell me. What's inside there? Right. So something's happening, right? There's that leavening effect. This, God tells us in His Word, is what we are like in this world. We, in a good sense, are the leaven of the world, and we will leaven the whole lump of the whole world. Praise be to God. Jesus Christ Himself has given us these illustrations of what it means to live in the age of the regeneration. What else? Has anyone ever planted a a seed? Now, if you're a little older in the crowd, you might be able to raise your hand. Have you ever planted a tree and see it grow up into a tree? I I, I can't say that I have. Anybody, if you've ever seen that, could... Okay. Now look, you have seen something very special, right? You saw something very small. Did you plant it from a seed or from a sprout? From a seed. Okay, so you've seen this, right? So Jesus gives us the mustard seed. Now, children, you've seen a seed go into the dirt before, probably, and... And you know the little germination experiments that we do in school? See, God is teaching us. He says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It goes into the dirt, it comes out and it starts growing. We've all got our gardens. And we see it grow up. Now this mustard seed, the Bible says, becomes the biggest tree in the garden. And there's birds that come and find shelter and make nests. Brothers and sisters, we live in the age of the regeneration. We, those who are in the regeneration by His work in us, we are this leaven. We are becoming this tree which fills the whole earth. Emmaus is hinting at this. I am doing more than hinting. (laughs) Did they understand this? Did they realize what it meant for Christ to enter His glory? I don't know if they understood this part yet. But they were getting there. They were getting there. John 7 puts it this way. 
On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, we are a part of the regeneration. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But the Holy Spirit has been given now. And we are the recipients of the Holy Spirit of God, and have every reason to believe in his promises to continue pouring out his Holy Spirit upon us, unto continued increased faith, and sanctification, and transformation, and an ever-decreasing sinful soul sorrow, and despair, and distance from God, and confusion, and idolatry. We should expect to become leavening mustard seeds in the earth, more and more, as we rest in Him, and are more and more content in Him alone. So what's the next thing that comes out of the the first thing that we see in this structure this chiasm that comes from the resurrection verses 22 and 23a and verse 24 both mention empty tomb and dawning faith i'll read the verses yes and certain women of our company so now the two disciples this is on the way to emmaus talking to jesus yes and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. And they're still talking on the way to the tomb, but they've already mentioned the resurrection at this point on the, on the way to Emmaus. Uh, and they've already mentioned the resurrection, and now they mention the empty tomb again. Verse 24, And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. I hope that you'll see. It's not a stretch. There's obvious chiastic symmetry here in this structure. So what's being emphasized by this? This is the first fruit, if you will, from seeing the resurrection. What's being demonstrated to us? Both the women and the disciples see the empty tomb. Neither the women nor the disciples saw Christ's body when they went to the tomb. So they both went. They both saw an empty tomb. They both did not see Christ's body. So... What happened? What does this teach us? We have to think back. As we've already studied from Luke 24, 8, the empty tomb experience with the angelic message had sparked the faith of the women in Christ's word. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Remember, they didn't get that. They didn't understand that. They get informed by God's word, and they remembered his words. And this is a remembering that is accompanied by that miraculous work of the Spirit. They understood and they believed Jesus was alive because he had said he would be alive. Similarly, in contrast to the disciples who ridiculed the women's message, Peter, and we know also from John, but not from Luke, they ran to the tomb. This demonstrates their dawning faith and a need for a new understanding of the Messiah. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. 
And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So note, before I go on, what's worth emphasizing here primarily at the center of it is that their eyes were opened. And it's similar to what we saw last week. The first fruit of that chiastic centerpiece last week was their eyes were opened. Dawning faith. The eyes of their heart being opened. That's the focal point here. Dawning faith. We all go through this as God opens our eyes. We all awaken to our prior ignorance. Our prior lack of faith. Whenever he takes us through these moments. Now as an important uh, tangent. I want us to note the mention of Christ's physical body in verse 23. And implied in verse 24. Jesus Christ was and is all man, 100% human, just like us with body and soul, except without sin. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, paragraph 2, relying on so many great formulations from prior works of the church. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come take upon Him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Praise be to God. Along those lines, where is Christ's body now? We're going to get, as we we go through Acts, what did Stephen see? He saw Christ's body in heaven, did he not? And in some, of course, mysterious way, look around you, there's Christ's body, right? And as we eat the bread and drink the wine, there's Christ's body. Uh, We don't understand that. But we can understand the fact that if we could stand on Mount Zion right now, we would see the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would see his body. Could you touch his body there? Could you hug him? Could he hug you? Could he sing to you with his tongue and his lungs and his vocal cords? And cause your eardrums to receive his singing voice? Could he do that? Yes, he could. Jesus Christ was and is all man. So the key point, going back to the stream of thought here, is dawning faith. That's what we see coming first. What's next? Hearts rekindled with Messiah truth. That's what we see Occurring next. They were confused. They didn't understand the truth about the Messiah. But Jesus teaches them the truth. Now, I want to ask a couple of questions, kind of linking these two points together. Has the truth of the resurrection of Christ Jesus been brought near to you by the Holy Spirit of God? Embraced by your soul as the defining point of life? Having the understanding of the heart, as the scriptures speak? Do you walk in the safety and the security of your resurrected Messiah's kingdom 
of regeneration? Is that where your feet stand? Or is your faith only for that day of death when you count on Him to take you to heaven? And His promises are for others. You know? Well, you know what will happen is you will replace that area with something else that you will rely on for safety and security in this life instead of Him. Something else will replace Him if you're not walking in Him in this life. Those are idols. Another kind of idol that we see in this section is a false Christ. Now, you may not have thought about this, but these, interestingly... These two disciples had made a false Christ in their mind. Verses 19 through 21. And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Note they say Jesus was. So they believe he is dead and gone for good. Note all they say about him is that he was a prophet. That's all they know of him. They do not yet understand he is also priest and king. And he will teach them this as he goes through the Scriptures. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? Suffered these things. The great high priest entered into His glory. The great King of all. They didn't understand all about Christ. This crucifixion was not good news to them. Is the crucifixion good news to you? (laughs) It was not good news to them. We were hoping He was the one to redeem Israel. His death had crushed their understanding of what it meant to be Messiah. They were hoping He was the one. But now they've given up. And why have they given up? Because they don't know the Scriptures. And then they say, today is the third day. This is shorthand for no hope. Hope is all gone. Gone, gone, gone. They've lost hope. They're walking away from Jerusalem. Their hearts by... Inference are cold and downcast. We know they look sad. Their hearts burned within them after they were instructed. So they had the coldness of ignorance in their souls beforehand. And I do want us to note, brothers and sisters, that biblical ignorance is a great cause for confusion and despair in life, especially as it pertains to Christ Himself. These men were involved in some very serious current events in Jerusalem that everyone had heard about. Nobody wanted to be linked to Jesus. There was great fear and consternation surrounding these current events. Does that sound familiar? And I will tell you, the same is true now, then, and forever. Biblical ignorance is a great cause for confusion and despair in our lives. Especially as it pertains to who the Lord Jesus Christ is. His powers, His glory, His plan, His purposes, His current reign. If we do not know these things, we will be confused and sad and despairing and aimless. Tossed about like apparently these two disciples were. So He teaches them. 
He teaches them. And He still teaches us. Then He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. So dawning faith has occurred with Peter and John and has occurred with the women at the tomb. And now Jesus is bringing them into this same experience. Jesus is, not was. He is the living Christ and He is speaking to them. And note, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks as certainly to us today as He did to them on that road by His Holy Spirit and His Word. He speaks to us just as certainly now as He did to them. How does he describe them? Foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. Yep, (laughs) that's me. Foolish one, slow of heart to believe. And specifically, slow of heart to believe all the scriptures. There's this implied selection bias that they've carried out as they've read the Old Testament. Oh, that part about somebody dying and uh, getting killed as the Messiah, that, oh, that must be somebody else. See, they were doing eisegesis. They were not allowing the Scriptures to speak for themselves. So their problem was this foolishness stemming from a lack of study and belief in all the Scriptures. They had their mind made up ahead of time about who the Messiah was and what He would do and how He would do it. And so as they read the Old Testament, They just ignored the parts that didn't fit into their pre-existing grid. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Do you do the same thing with God's word? Do you ignore those parts that don't make sense or fit into your grid? Just don't do that. Do you have pet scriptures while ignoring others? Do you believe what you read from the scriptures? And even though you may not understand it, do you believe it and try to come to understand it? Mark Twain said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. So it's very clear from reading the Old Testament that the Messiah had to suffer and die. They didn't understand it. It troubled them. They were like Mark Twain. They just kind of set it aside. Jesus Christ speaks clearly to them their central doctrinal need. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? There it is. He points out to them where their failure occurred. They saw Him as a prophet. No need to suffer before going into glory. Their faulty understanding of Messiah did not include the need for the Messiah to suffer these things before He could enter into His glory. Thus, their understanding of the Messiah did not include the need for Christ to be crucified unjustly. That was not a part of their understanding of the Messiah. Or the need for Christ to be resurrected. They wouldn't have any thoughts towards a resurrection if they weren't thinking about Him dying before His glory. How do you get to glory? If you're going to die first, you have to be resurrected. Similar to Abraham knowing that Isaac would be raised from But then only after suffering, they didn't understand this third thing, could he enter his glory, which is the ascension. 
So basically, these key doctrinal realities, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, in that order, were foreign to them. They didn't understand that about their Messiah. They didn't understand the nature of his deliverance. They didn't understand what they were being delivered from. They thought of it primarily in, in nationalistic terms. That the, Jew, the Jewish nation would be restored to the prior age of glory like they had with Solomon and the great age of the kingdom at that time. What were they experiencing at this time? <laughs> Can you imagine being there and hearing that great sermon preached by Christ himself? Well, what does Jesus do? He goes through the entire Old Testament. Now, he could have said, look at me, here I am, here's proof. What does he give as proof that they are wrong? He goes through the entire Old Testament showing these two disciples all of the scriptures concerning himself. He did not point to himself first in order to correct their understanding, in order to grow their faith. He did not reveal his resurrected body in order to save them from their unbelief and despair. Think of that. He pointed first to scripture so then they could come to him. Note, please, brothers and sisters, even Christ himself relies upon Scripture as he teaches these two disciples. The one who wrote the Bible, the author and the final authority himself, shows us our need to rely upon his word as the source of our faith, as the only way to draw near to him, as the only way to fix our eyes upon him. Don't think you can draw near to Christ apart from Christ's word. You will never draw near to the true Christ, the real, living, ascended, reigning, regenerating Christ without his word. Without his word. Illumined to your soul by his spirit. And that's what these two were experiencing during this teaching. They said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? That's in verse 32. So this resurrection reversal shows the power of the word of God to overcome fear, despair, confusion, and a misdirected life. Brothers and sisters, I think so often we read the word of God from the flesh and so we don't trust God. God's word anymore. But when we, like these disciples, hear God's word by the anointing of God's spirit, we will say with the psalmist over and over again, O oh, satisfy us early with your mercy that we, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So idolatry is the fruit of ignorance, but worship is the fruit of biblical knowledge and understanding hearts that are satisfied, satisfied through and through with the mercy of God. And that's what these disciples were discovering as they were on their way, as Christ taught them. What happens next? Well, they've got warmed hearts now. We know this. The word of God is working on them and they welcome a new friend. See, he was a stranger. No, he's not. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? There is a relational outcome when the word of God works in us. 
Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Things have changed in their relationship with this stranger. These two disciples who had walked with Jesus for years. Think of it. I mean, did he have on a disguise? The text doesn't say that he looked any different than he normally looked. But they didn't recognize him. They didn't have the worldview necessary to even consider the possibility that the man that they were talking to is Jesus Christ. And so they literally could not recognize him. Even though he was right there talking to them. Their ignorance, confusion, and unbelief literally blinded them to Christ himself. Their eyes were constrained by their own unbelief. And I want us to see that this is something that happens to us as well. Walking in confusion and ignorance and unbelief, Jesus is a stranger even as he draws near to us. He may be near to us and we do not see him. We can walk in his presence and miss him, seeing him only as a stranger. This can occur in our relationships where someone is coming to us and bringing to us the voice of Christ and how they're loving us and relating to us. This can occur in our relationship with God's Word, in our relationship with providence, our understanding of reality. And we have to be changed. Our understanding has to be informed. Our worldview has to be changed so that we can actually see what's right in front of our eyes. It's true for you. It's true for me. And it will be true for us until we are arrived at glory. There's this resurrection reversal that occurs in their lives. And it's a defining moment for them. They bring him in. They didn't have to bring him in, but they did. They invited him to come in and stay. This man on the road, they're now warm towards him. Their hearts had burned, and now they desire him to come in. Bringing new fire to their souls, a dawning faith and a desire to be with the one who had taught them. So I hope that we will see that ignorance of God's word and the attendant unbelief distances us from Christ and from his people. Conversely, faith in Christ's word draws us near to him and to his people. Relational problems are solved. It it is this simple. It is this simple. Relational problems are solved by humble reception of God's truth unto confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Every relational problem can be traced back to a rejection of truth. Pride and a hard-hearted refusal to, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. And this... Final step is so beautiful. Very similar to what we saw last week. Body and soul are happy and tranquil eating with Christ. They were sad and wandering. And now they're happy and seated. They're blessed. Verse 17, he said to them, What kind of conversation is that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Sorrow will eat up the parts of your soul that are ignorant. Of Christ. To the extent that your mind is not informed of truth, you will be sorrowful. 
you'll be sad. And it is a, a reasonable sadness. It is a sadness that rightly flows from that ignorance. It's not the only source of sadness, of course. But there is an ignorance sadness that is in view here. They are very sad. Sorrow covers them and flows out from them. And they're on the move, but where are they going? So please take it in. that Sadness eventually overcomes the soul, ignorant of the Messiah's death, resurrection, and glory. And this sadness must have a solution. It, it must have a solution. You will be controlled by it if it is deep enough. And you will, you will, you will, you will erect these uh, paths of discontentment and aimlessness to, to provide a salve for yourself. Sadness will drive us on the path of discontentment and aimlessness. Always searching, never finding. Always drinking, ever thirsty. Always eating, never full. That is the life that comes from ignorance of Christ and who he is. It is inevitable in this life. It will be true of you. And I'm not saying, obviously it's true for those who are unbelievers. But it is also true for believers to the extent that our faith does not match our lives. Does not match the situation in which we find ourselves. Have you ever seen movies about orphans? Saw a documentary about orphans in Africa. What was the fellow's name? Mully. This wonderful Christian man who went around and there's these orphans everywhere. And you know he would generally find them in packs or hiding. They're terrified. You are not an orphan. You are not an orphan. But to the extent that your faith is lacking, not believing that Christ is walking with you, not believing that Christ is resurrected and ascended and that you live in the age of the regeneration and that he will see you through to the end no matter what, to the extent that you don't believe that, you're an orphan. You're a Christian orphan. Well, he's my father over there, but he's not really my father here. Or he'll be a father to others in this situation, but I can't really be sure he'll be a father to me, so I better erect my own plans for when God lets me down. That is sadness, fear, driving us on the path of discontentment and aimlessness. What happens afterwards? Well, he sat at table with them. He took bread. He blessed and broke it and he gave it to them. That's all. They just sat down with Jesus and ate some bread that he gave to them. This is not aimless. There's no sadness here. If there is, it's being soothed. This scene is a scene of comfort and rest and serenity and joyful friendship at table. And it is what we must have to survive this life. We must be comforted by God. We must be comforted in who he is at table with him in our souls. And it is available to us daily, moment by moment, by faith. You see, joyful rest with Christ not only brings us to life's purpose and ends our wandering, 
but it brings us also into restful communion with him. And oh, what a comfort. You see, living in this life will require the comfort of God. And that's what these two disciples experience. All of this, the joy, the rest, the eating, all of it, the closeness with God, all of it brings forth comfort. And you will find it in abundance with Him. And nowhere else will you find it. There's no comfort anywhere else. Oh, satisfy us early with Your mercy, Lord, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Brothers and sisters, this world will lie to you. Your flesh will clamor and the devil will seek to mislead you. How can we be delivered from discontentment? Let us be satisfied with Christ, resting with Him at the table that He has set before us. And we come together here, and who knows, if, if for whatever reason the church was ever renamed, maybe comfort. <laughs> maybe comfort would make its way into the name. Because that's what we are here for week after week is the comfort of Christ. He comforts us and he reminds us that he died for us. He comforts us as he continues to teach us and inform our ignorant minds. He comforts us by his Holy Spirit week in and week out. And when we eat the bread and drink the wine, resting at his table as his beloved children, he comforts us from start to finish. He comforts us. So I hope that we will see that the fellowship with God that was forfeited in the garden has been restored in Christ. The pinnacle of resurrection reversals is peace and joyful communion with God and with one another. And that is why the Lord's Supper is last in Christian worship. I'm not saying it has to be only last, but... In general, what you see throughout Scripture, the pattern of worship is the zenith of worship, is the celebration, the apex, the mountaintop, is the celebration of the table that He has set before us. And this will be the outcome of the age of regeneration. People over the whole world dwelling together in peace, eating together the bread and the wine before His face, Sunday after Sunday, flowing out into a world transformed by people loving God and loving one another so that He returns to a world that looks like it belongs to Him, to a people where every knee is bowed and every tongue is confessing that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father. So, what does this mean for you? A few quick questions. Do you believe that it is available to you to have an overflowing life with gladness and joy and comfort as your life? Not manufactured, not fabricated because you know you're supposed to be that way, but real. Do you believe this is available to you? Next, do you have false Christ problems in your life?
keep reading God's word, please. Ask him to correct your ignorance of Christ if there's, if there's ignorance, and I'm sure there is. None of us know him perfectly, do we? Ask him to help you, especially in areas where ignorance of Christ may be impacting your life with sadness and confusion. Do you see any idolatry in your life? Areas where, as I've said before, you've constructed these ways of living in these areas where you're not able to lean or trust on, trust in Christ, lean on or trust in Christ. There's a long list of these types of things we can run to in our lives. Many of them can be good things. Does today's sermon impact how you view God's word? Does it give you more motivation to make sure that you've given the voice of Jesus Christ the proper place in your life that it should have and in your family's life? If Christ was in your presence and you couldn't see him, do you see that he would say, read my word and then you will see? Our sorrow, confusion, ask yourself, our sorrow, confusion, distance from God, relationship problems, are they a part of your life regularly or, or do these things characterize your life? Perhaps a root of this is ignorance and unbelief of the truth of God's so many voices in this world that are not from God's word. If sorrow, confusion, distance from God and relationship problems are a part of your life with any regularity, perhaps a good plan would be to shut the mouth of every one of those voices. Until you find yourself in a place of strength and rejoicing and gladness every day so you can engage with these lies as a conqueror. It's a humble thing to admit that. It's a humble thing to admit, I don't know God's word like I should. I've been confused by voices and and I'm just not as mature as as I thought I was. And even if you are in a spot of maturity, that will change to the extent that you hear other voices more than you hear the voice of God in his Oh, brothers and sisters, what does the Lord say to us at the opening of our worship today? Hear, O my people, I am the Lord your God. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Is it true of you when we said, My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God? May it be true of us. May it be true of us that we would be those people who seek Him. Do you find in your life that you're walking in satisfaction with God's mercy? Is that enough for you? There's there's this thing called soul satisfaction. And if you try to get it from anywhere other than God, you're going to be frustrated. And it's going to show up in your life and in your relationships. Would you pray 
Psalm 90.14 for yourself as a, as a result of today's sermon? Would you, would you make that an application in your life and, and for your family and, and even for our church? Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. You hear that? All our days. Days of death. Days of life. Days of birth. Days of funerals. Days of hunger. Days of abundance. Days of brokenness. Days of wholeness. All our days. We can rejoice and be glad. And finally, another practical thing to ask you. Do you see the importance of peaceful mealtime? Where you sit down together as a family and you experience the comfort that God intends for your family at that time. Maybe a good practice would be to make Psalm 9014 a part of your mealtime prayer. Maybe that might be a good way to remind us of these truths as we sit down to eat together with our friends and with our family. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, our Messiah, for the crucifixion that washes away all of our sins by His precious blood, our great High Priest, for His resurrection from the, de from the dead, proving that we are delivered, His ascension as our great King, King of regeneration, who still teaches us by your word. Bless us, we pray, to trust in you. Teach us from your word and drive out ignorance that is harming us. Teach us from your word to love Christ and lean on him and drive out the idols from our lives. Satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. In Jesus' name.